This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 210 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Matt Krause. Did I say that hello, right? Yes, you did, and it's a pleasure to be here. Do you want to give us a brief introduction, Matt? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am originally from the U.S., from California and Seattle, uh, but now I live in Istanbul, and I do speech writing for people in the finance industry, like bankers and portfolio managers and stuff like that. Every time somebody says Istanbul, I have that song go through my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I try not to get that song running through my head because once it starts, it just can't stop. All right, well, then I won't quote lyrics at you. Wait, wait, which, <laughs> which song are you guys talking about? I seriously <laughs> oh, no. don't know. Istanbul, uh, what's it? Istanbul, it Constantinople, right? From, uh, right? Who was that? Is it the, They Might Be Giants? Well, they yeah, did a they remake of it. They, they did it, but it's a much older song. But they did a like a modern version of it. Gotcha. All right, I am Definitely hereby worked. educated. <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend not uh, looking any further into that. Just <laughs> <laughs> let sleeping dogs lie. All right. Yeah, just just let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> All right. Well, we brought you on to talk about finding leads. Okay. I'm I'm curious as to where would you, where would you start in talking about finding leads? I mean, there's so much out there about it, so much advice, so many ideas. You know, what, where do you recommend that we start? Where I would recommend that we start is uh, with what what I call the the mindset change or the attitude adjustment. I, I, I think that, that you know speaking as lead gen is is great. It's how I make my living. It's how I put food on the table. It's how I pay my rent. But ninety percent of the people who think that, hey, I need to speak. I think they come at it the wrong way. They have way overblown expectations about what's going to happen. And so I, there are three in particular. And, and so that's, that's where I would start is diving into those three. Now, you said attitude adjustment. My mom always said I needed one of those. So I'm, I'm eager to get started. <laughs> okay. Uh, sh- shall I get started with the three most common misconceptions that we see? Yeah. Okay. One is that somehow attending a conference, whether it's as a, as a speaker or as an audience member, is somehow going to change your life and your business. It's, you know, the, I, uh, we, we see this. I, I've got a, a client right now who's at a conference in, in Germany. I'm on the, the mailing list for this conference, and so they send me their promotional emails and one of the, the promotional emails mentions how many C-level executives are going to be at this conference. And it, it's one of their, you know, they, they promote some big number, like 45% of our 9 million participants are going to be C-level executives. And a lot of people read that and they, they think, oh, wow, you know, if I attend this conference, then the, the decision makers that I'm trying to reach all year long, they're all going to be in the same room and it's going to be like manna from heaven, and all of a sudden, my life is going to change. And, and that is huh. totally, totally the wrong way to go about it. Those C-level executives, they're not thinking about you at all. 
they're there for the the same reason you are, which is to expand their businesses and to to meet people and do some networking. They are definitely not there thinking, hey, I'm going to meet this great vendor. (laughs) So that's one misconception is that somehow the richness of the C-level executives in the room is somehow going to magically change your business overnight. That's misconception number one. Yeah, but if I eat a bologna sandwich and the C-level guy is eating a bologna sandwich, then, then I'm that much smarter, right? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, oh, man. Yeah. I've been doing it wrong all this time. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to break your dreams about that, but that's not how it works. The second uh, misconception that uh, we see a lot of people have is for years they've been hearing about the, the elevator speech, and they think – Oh, you know, if I have just the right, if I have the the perfect combination of words in the elevator speech, then somehow my life is going to change and I'm going to, you know, have 10 seconds in the elevator with this person and and I'm going to puke my elevator speech out on them and they're going to get off that elevator and think, oh my God, when I get back into the office, I need to hire that person immediately. And so that's, that's misconception for two. And, you know, I, I love elevator speeches. I think they're great, uh, but they have almost no effect on other people. They're great for, for you defining what it is that you do and for you focusing on what it is that you do and who you serve. And so it's a, it's a, it's a coming up with an elevator speech is a great exercise for, for you, you know, to do in your living room or your kitchen. It has no effect at all on anybody else. That's misconception number two. Dare I admit that I've been in the elevator with somebody who gave me their elevator pitch, and then they looked at me expectantly like, aren't you impressed? And I was looking back at them like, I'm almost to my floor. Uh, uh, (laughs) When you dump out your elevator speech on somebody, they're they're not thinking, oh, my God, here I am in the elevator speech, or here I'm in the elevator, and I'm just waiting for this guy to rock my world. They're they're, they're not thinking about that. Right? <laughs> the yeah, light they're, they're, shines down from above. Yeah. <laughs> they're not thinking about that at all. They're not even hoping for that. They're just like, oh, my God, this was such a long day, and there were so many boring speeches. I just want to get <laughs> back to my room and call my wife and then maybe go to the pool or something. That's right. all they're thinking. They're not thinking, okay, now, here's your big 10 seconds. Rock my world. You know, That's not what they're thinking. And then the third misconception that we run into is that, uh, you know, and this one is about the the follow-up collateral, you know, the PDF that you attach to an email and, you know, send to this new contact that you made when you get back in in the office. And there's there's this common misconception that that more is better, you know, that a page, white paper, in which you dump out all of your – Years of hard-won experience and all of your brilliance, you know, this 20-page document where you dump all of that out is somehow going to rock their world. And it's not the job of that at all. It took you years to acquire that experience and to expect somebody to be impressed by it in you know, a couple seconds is completely the wrong way to, to think about it, I think. Well, and I know a few people at the sea level and they don't have time to read a 20-page thing. They'll read it if you've already kind of primed them to be interested in what you have to share. But yeah. otherwise, forget it. I kind of <laughs> want to go back to that first point, though, because I, I think there's plenty to dig in here. And that is, if they're there to network and you're there to network, then uh-huh. how, how do you make it so that when you're at an event that you are connecting with the right people and that they are actually going to be interested in talking to you? Because... I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it's that automatic to me. You know, you can follow them around, but eventually they're just going to get weirded out and leave them alone. <laughs> that's true. They're, they're, they are going to arrest you for stalking if, if that's the way you go about it. And uh, the key to, uh, I think, the, the key to making these contacts is it's like it's like going going to, going to a conference and networking is it's it's very much like going to a singles bar. You know, you don't you don't go to a singles bar or. Now, now I'm, I'm the last person who should be giving romantic advice, <laughs> but uh, but uh, when you go to a singles bar, I think the, the the most successful people at the singles bar are the ones who have crushed their egos, not in a bad way, but crushed their egos enough so that they're not there trying to get their needs fulfilled. They're they're 
before they try to get their needs fulfilled, they crush their needs long enough to see what is the other person needing. And so when, when you go to one of these networking events, you might have a, a room full of a thousand people, but your goal should not be to make all of those thousand people interested in you. It should be to pick out the, you know, three or four people who you want to meet and figure out what interests them. And maybe something that you know or some service you provide interests them. And then you have a reason to talk with them and establish a connection. But to walk into the room and say there are a thousand people here, uh, I'm mixing metaphors here, singles and conferences, to, to walk into a conference with a thousand people and think that uh, somehow you're going to find a way to interest a large portion of that thousand people is setting yourself up for disappointment. This sounds vaguely or even not too vaguely like positioning, right? Like that just as yeah. your website and just as your business isn't going to appeal to everyone, you shouldn't expect to appeal to everyone at a conference. I have a friend who, um, before she goes to a conference, tries to find out who else is going and then goes through those people's profiles on LinkedIn and tries to find yeah. like a few of the people who are most likely to be of use to her in her work. Um, and then she targets them and like goes and talks to them and figures there's a greater chance of success there. And until you just said everything you said, I used to think that was just like kind of kooky and a little stockish. But yeah. now it actually sounds like it makes good business sense. It does make good business sense. And before, before I talk about that, I, I want to acknowledge that uh, when it comes to positioning, I know I'm on a podcast which in which one of the people is like the god of positioning. So <laughs> in other yeah. You, Philip. So, and by the way, uh, a shout out to Philip because over the the past year or so, he has been one of not not exclusively, but one of my lighthouses in the in the the quest to specialize. But uh, back to the, the the LinkedIn stalking. I, hey, I stalking agree. is only bad if it's unwanted. There you go. And stalking is only bad if it's unwanted. And uh, <laughs> and, and, and and there is absolutely nothing unwanted about looking on LinkedIn, Let, let's say you got this, this conference of, you know, a thousand people and you know that in this time you're only going to be able to, to meet four or five of these people. And, and these people, if, if you have, if you, if you can solve one of their problems, then they, they want to meet you doing a little LinkedIn stalking to find out who those four or five people are. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. So Matt, I'm curious. Um, I know that most conferences are going to publish their speaker list. Um, how, how would you know? I mean, to go, go one layer deeper on the LinkedIn stalking, how would you know who might be there? Like maybe you're going to kind of build a short list of people that you think you're well positioned to help them in some way, solve some problem their business is facing. How would you go about finding them? If you have a, a conference of a thousand people or a hundred people or however large the conference is, less than 10% of the people are going to be speakers. Uh, most of the people in the room are going to be audience members. And so if you, if you just look at the, the list of speakers to find out who to talk to, you're not going to have much luck there, you know, and it's going to be very competitive because a lot of people are going to be trying to speak or talk to the speakers. So one of the, the best ways is a, a technique that a lot of people use naturally, which is, you know, you're going to a conference, it's probably in an industry that you work in, so you know some other people in your industry. So you talk to them and say, hey, um, I am really interested in digitalization of financial services. And they'll tell you, oh, you should talk to XYZ or ABC or, you know, this other person. And so, you know, that kind of uh, retail sourcing. Uh, is uh, uh, how most people go about it. And it's one of the most effective ways to go about it, I think. Ask other people who are in your industry. Tell them what's on your mind. Tell them who you're looking for. They'll, if, if they're in your industry, they'll probably know somebody. Well, I can tell you too, and I'll just give a brief example of this. Uh, I'm going to be attending Podcast Movement in Chicago in, mm -hmm. uh, in a few weeks. And I had two different people. One of them interviewed me for his podcast, and the other one has been a member of the Ruby Rogues panel, and she's going to be there as well with her husband. And they both mentioned that they were going to be at the conference. And one of them basically said, you know, do you know many people there? And I've gone to this conference for the last three years. 
So I, you know, I definitely know people there. And I said, yeah, I know people. And she immediately said, well, can you introduce me? And I mean, just, just that much, you know, even though she doesn't necessarily know who she's targeting there or the people that she's going to want to talk with, the reality is, is that since I know what her podcast is about, I know what she does. I know what she cares about. I know what personality type she is. There are definitely people that I'm going to introduce her to that I think are going to be able to benefit her with the relationship and also uh, will be good overall for both of us uh, for her to know. And so, I mean, just that much, just, oh, somebody I know is going to be there is in many cases enough to get at least get that ball rolling and get that door open. This is a... Sounds tangential, but uh, but it's it's actually not. Istanbul is a city of you know 15 million people or whatever, but it's not a city of 15 million people. It's a lot of little groups of 50 people, and conferences are the same way. You might have a, a thousand people at a conference, but it's not a, a thousand you know atomized people. It's it's a bunch of groups of five or ten or twenty or fifty people, and most of your life is going to be lived in that group anyway. And to try to live your life outside of that group, then you're going to have a, a really low success rate if you approach things that way. Yeah, that's actually pretty true. It's funny that you mentioned that because at this particular conference, a podcast movement, I mean, I do, I actually move in a couple of different circles. So I know a lot of the people in kind of the business podcast space. And then I yeah. also know a lot of people in the Christian podcast space. And I know uh-huh. a lot of people in the technology podcast space. And yeah. all of them kind of move in different, you know, in different circles. And there's some cross-pollination because I I introduce some of the people between them and they introduce some of the other people between each other. But, yeah, generally the the people in the one group aren't going to be spending a ton of time with people in the other group unless they actually sort of fit in with that group already. This business that I have now, the the financial speech writing business, it kind of morphed from another business, which was a broader in my my naive days two or three years ago, my naive pre Philip Morgan days before specialization. I would do uh, presentation training, and for some reason, a, a lot of people seem to think that when they stand up in front of a group and somebody turns on PowerPoint. They magically become different beings following a different set of rules. And that's the, the, the wrong way to go about it. It's, it, you know, you use the same human to human communication tools that you've been using since you were born. You know, going to a conference is, is the same way. You're, you're not, if you try to use anything but the human communication techniques that you've been using for your entire life, you're setting yourself up for massive failure and disappointment. Yeah, this is, again, something that uh, I've learned in Toastmasters, where you know each speech focuses on a different part of the way that you communicate. And, yeah, yeah every, every bit of it, you know, from your vocal variety all the way down to telling stories, you have more people's attention at the same time. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the things that people identify with. They don't change when you're giving a speech. And those are the things that really pay off for you. At some point uh, in this uh, podcast today, I'd like to go a little deeper into, uh, now that you bring up Toastmasters, the, the speech gene in me comes out. And uh, at some point in this interview today, I'd like to go into the, the basic structure of a, of a speech and how we go about it. And I, I don't know, do you want to do that now or should we do that later? I think that's a pretty good segue. Okay. A couple of days ago, I, I got this this newsletter, and uh, I, I subscribed to like nine million email newsletters, and so this is just one of them. And the, the 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 guy was was talking about the importance of writing a book or the value of writing a book, and and I totally agree with that. I'm I'm completely down with that idea, the the importance of of writing a book. But I was uh, reading through that email and thinking, yeah, I understand how important writing a book is. How do you write a book? <laughs> So, you know, we're, we're here on this podcast and we're talking about the importance of speaking as, as lead gen. And yeah, it, it's, it's easy for us to all agree that, oh yeah, speaking is great for, for lead generation. But then you get to this question about, well, so how do you write a speech? And, uh, you know, you can solve that by learning some techniques from Toastmasters. And by the way, I'm a, 
also a Toastmasters member, Chuck. So, so I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Toastmasters. But yeah, the, the question of, of how do you write a speech comes up. And uh, the first step that we use when, when writing a speech is what I call uh, talking to the wall. And I don't mean, you know, talk, talk to the wall as in like talk to, you know, inanimate object that doesn't care. I just mean talk to an inanimate object, like, you know, talk to the TV or a plant or your cell phone or whatever. In programming, uh, we call it rubber ducking. Rubber ducking. I have never heard that term, but uh, by rubber ducking, do you mean like just... Yeah, you talk to a rubber duck. Break? Yeah, okay. Talk to a rubber duck. You're just kind of doing a brain dump of yeah. the things that are on your mind. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, without the stress of having a real person in front of you that might be scrutinizing what you're saying. That's what I mean. So, and you know, spend a couple hours talking about somebody who, you know, well, talking to a rubber duck or to a plant or to a wall or whatever, some inanimate object that that doesn't care or it isn't isn't critiquing what you're saying and just kind of randomly unstructured dump all the stuff that's on your mind just dump it out onto the floor and just see what's there and one of the benefits of that is that in in that process you might find some new way of describing something or some new perspective on something Every once in a while, you'll find that, okay, I started out, I was talking about X, but I found out that I was really, really interested in talking about Y. That happens about, uh, you know, 20% of the time. But uh, about 80% of the time, what will happen is that you'll see another perspective or another angle on, on the issue. Uh, that's the, the main benefit of, that comes out of the, the rubber ducking for programming. Is it uh, a similar benefit? Yeah, usually it's a technique used for debugging or for designing okay. code. And so uh -huh. as you work through the problem, as you talk through the problem, explain the problem to your rubber duck, a lot of times you'll have the insights of, oh, I didn't look at this. Oh, I didn't try this. I didn't think of that. My brain kind of took me to a different place because I'm vocalizing my thought process. Yeah. The next stage is what I call a boy meets girl. It's a, you know adding some structure to this miscellaneous batch of stuff that you puked out onto the floor. And... Uh, when I say boy meets girl, you know, I wouldn't in a million years uh, claim that that was my idea. <laughs> that idea existed God knows how many thousands of years ago. But basically, boy meets girl is, uh, you know, something good happens, boy meets girl. Something bad happens, boy loses girl. Something good and inspirational happens, boy gets girl back. It's a useful structure that uh, works for, for many industries. And uh, I, we, we can even take a, a, a speech about Istanbul's corporate debt markets and give that speech coherence and interestingness by running it through this boy meets girl structure. The boy meets girl structure, it, uh, it works for a lot of things, but you still need to check it. And so you need to run it through some tests. After you apply this, this structure, you still need to run it through some tests. And uh, a couple of the tests that I recommend running it through, one, I, I call it... Uh, Stick to the delta. The delta is in uh, delta is in change, uh, not delta is in you know the Mississippi River delta. Delta is in change. Humans love movement. They're, they're fascinated by movement, Mo movement and change. So as, as you're reviewing the the structure that you applied, boy meets girl. Look at it from the perspective of is there is there change? Is there movement in this in the speech and it, with with the, the boy meets girl story, there will almost always be movement because first the boy meets the girl, then the boy loses the girl, then the boy gets the girl back. In the example of, you know, Turkish corporate debt, the Turkish corporate debt markets used to be great. Now they're not so great. This is what I recommend for getting them back on track. Uh, so almost always you'll pass this first test, the stick to the delta test. The the second test, I call it uh, HGOM. And uh, HGOM stands for Hero stands for, or H stands for hero, then goal, obstacle, mentor, moral. And, and again, this is not an original Matt idea. This is, uh, this, I stole this from, from Copyblogger. When you're, when you're reviewing your corporate debt speech or whatever other speech you're, you're writing about whatever subject, see, make sure that these five elements are in your story. If you've missed one of them, then you might need to work it in there. So, so, so Matt, let, let me just ask this then, like, so I know this is going to sound a little silly, but like, 
why would you care about having these elements in a speech? Is it because, and, and let me try to bring it around maybe a bit to like, you know, consulting and freelancing and, and even a bit to lead generation is the idea that, cause I give a lot of talks at conferences and okay. I know, like, I just know from experience that when I give a talk at some point within the next six months, and it can take that long, someone will call me and say, I yeah. saw your talk and I'm interested in you know hiring you or I'm interested in exploring if you use one of these structures that it sounds like it will resonate more with your audience. You have a greater chance of that happening. Am I right? Yeah. That's why I recommend using these structures. It's not and, just, it sounds nice, but like there, there is actually added effectiveness to it. Yeah. There's well, an, an, the thing oh, is, is we, I think we all kind of work in narratives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I explain programming concepts in narratives. Uh, you know, the fact that somebody can follow a story, somebody can, invest in a character, invest in a process, invest in an outcome, and, you know, and that's where, you know, so they invest in the character, they invest in the hero, they invest in maybe them, themselves as the hero, you know, you have the goals that, that you're working toward, and so they get invested in, in a particular outcome occurring, and, you know, you move through this narrative and you work through it, and, and people are somewhat familiar and expect things to follow this pattern anyway. And so by yeah. doing this, you give them something that they're familiar with, but at the same time, you give them something that they can latch onto and feel like they're a part of. Got it. Especially when, uh, when working with, uh, you know, the, the, the sector that we work with is you know, financial people and the story that they tell themselves about their place in the world is that they're, you know, ultra rational. Everything is by the numbers. Everything is reviewed. And maybe that's true. In the end, if you pull back enough of the layers, you'll find that there's a, there's a human below there. And humans, for, for whatever reason, they respond to these kind of structures. And, you know, if you, if you mention the word story to the sector that we work with, the finance types, They'll, they'll often think of story as, you know, a fable that I heard when I was a kid and there was a beautiful princess and there was a brave knight on a big white horse. And that's what a story is. And so when you mention the word story to this particular cohort, you might lose all credibility really fast. But if you peel back the layers, that's basically still the tool that you're using is the, the structure of telling a story. Yeah, right. absolutely. Well, and if you go read, I mean, I, I'm in the middle of a, a series of fantasy novels right now. That's kind of my escape. And there are still things that, you know, morals to the story, so to speak. But I mean, people really latch onto that and they really identify with it because effectively it's, it's a narrative of struggle or a narrative of, of something familiar that they have dealt with. And so, yeah. you know, it, it takes them to a place where they can then relate to identify with and invest in whatever you're talking about. Ruben, you said that, that you do speaking at conferences and that invariably someone follows up with you. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like necessarily right after my talk, but it's, it's pretty, I would say, you know, 80, 90% likely that after I give it a talk at a conference, someone will ask me, uh, you know, at some point to, uh, you know, if I can help them out for sure. Yeah. Getting that kind of, uh, response, uh, especially if you're giving a talk at a conference or, you know, if you're a speaker on a panel or something at the conference, whatever, you have a, an opportunity while you're in front of that audience to portray yourself as, somebody who's approachable, you know, sometimes and in, in often mostly out of, out of nervousness, people will get up there on the stage and the conversation will just be kind of one way. I'm up here. I read from my script and you're sitting in that chair. And then in 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever, I'm going to sit down and this will be over. And uh, the conversion rate on that uh, tends to be very low. Like the conversion rate is in the, the number of people who are going to approach you either afterwards at the break or a couple months later at your office or whatever. Those The, the conversion rate on, on that approach tends to be pretty low. So uh, I also think it's important when you're speaking at a conference to drum up audience participation, uh, a two-way two -way participation in some way. And it doesn't have to be fancy or sophisticated or well-developed or whatever, 
but it's important to uh, drum up that two-way conversation. And if you're there to network or to, to generate leads for your business, that kind of two-way participation in the in your speech will pay huge dividends, you know, at the break or, you know, months later at your office. Matt, do you have any kind of go-to ways to do that? Is it like asking for a show of hands from the audience or something more involved than that? No, it, it's as simple as that. Uh, uh, okay. There's a, a misconception. I wouldn't put it as the, the biggest misconception, but it's it, there's a common misconception, which is that drumming up this uh, audience participation is a it's a personality skill. There there are only a few charismatic people who can do it, and to some extent that's true. Now I, I would say that roughly thirty percent of a person's ability, you know, to have a two way participation with the audience is uh, personality based. But but 70% of it is uh, structural. It has absolutely nothing to do with your charismatic powers. One way that you can do it is by asking one person. You can do it in stages. Uh, you know, to walk out cold onto the stage and to ask everybody to open their mouths and start speaking, it's like you'll be terrified. Uh, the audience will probably be shocked. Uh, the whole thing will just go south real fast. So it's much better to start slow. And you, you can start by asking one person a simple yes or no question. And all you want is for them to say yes or no. And that just signals to the audience that, okay, uh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine to open your mouth and speak. And that's all you want. And it doesn't even have to be about your subject. Uh, I've seen people get up and just do a quick time check. You know, they get up there on the stage and they, they look out into the audience or they look at the organizer or whatever and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be up here for 20 minutes. If I go over, can you signal to me? And the, oh, that's good. somebody says, yes, that's all you need. One person saying yes or no. And then that signals to the audience that, okay, some, some voice opening your mouth is okay. So the world is not going to, you know, end if I open my mouth. So, so then you move on from there to, you know, a larger group of people, and not asking them to say anything, just, uh, you know, with a show of hands. Today I'm speaking about, uh, you know, how to solve problem X. How many of you have experienced problem X in your professional lives? And, you know, 40% of the audience raises their hand. They don't need to vocalize anything. Just raise their hand. So now you have one person opening their mouth. You have a little physical activity, 40% of the people raising their hand. Now, now you move on to something a little bit more difficult, which is uh, getting one person to stand up and vocalize. Because remember, uh, at the you know the first time that you got somebody to vocalize, it might have been about you know an irrelevant subject. So now, you, for step number three, you get one person to stand up and vocalize, and uh, that's a that's a pretty hard step to make. But one of the one of the ways that uh, I recommend doing that is uh, at the coffee break beforehand or the lunch or whatever, some, some break beforehand. Talk to some of your audience members and, you know, find out why they're there and tell them what you're speaking about and get them to ask you a question about the subject. And then say, that's a great question. Would you mind uh, standing up during my speech and asking that question? And talk to five people. Four of them will be kind of scared. They're not going to do it. But one of them will jump at the opportunity. Yeah, I'd love to stand up during your speech and ask this question. So, so now you've kind of recruited your person for step number three. So you reach the, the time in your speech where, you know, you want to get speech or technique number three. You want to show people that, okay, it's okay to stand up and open your mouth. So when that time comes, you get your recruited person to stand up and, and ask their question. Now the audience knows that, okay, it's okay to open your mouth. And it's okay to raise your hand. It's okay to have a two-way conversation with the speaker. You know, and, Matt, it's funny you say that. Like, so I, I do mostly training. And uh -huh. um, before, there was a company that did a lot of training through for a number of years. And they had me do sort of a screen test kind of thing. And so it was just me giving, as it were, a five-minute lesson to one person. 
you know, I did my five-minute thing. And she said, well, you're okay. I said, okay, you know, what, what can I do to improve? And she said, the first thing you should do when starting a talk or when starting uh-huh. to, you know, to teach is you should go around the room and ask people's names and, and what their background is. And I really uh-huh. poo-pooed that until I started to do that. And I uh-huh. really feel it's like a crucial part now of when I teach, talking to people and, and learning who they are and starting the interaction already from the first moment. And yeah. so um, I was in Beijing uh, about two weeks ago now teaching. And I got feedback, of course, indirectly through the training company that I was working with there saying mm-hmm. that the training manager at the company really thought that this was a huge waste of time that I was talking to people and getting their names yeah. and getting their backgrounds. I should really do that before the course, not during the course. And and my feeling was it was a game changer because it, it showed I want the interaction and it showed that I'm curious about them and I could use that information in my teaching. And so from my perspective, it's not wasted time at all. It's It like sets the stage for better interactions and and better learning and uh, a better talk on my part. When when you do these trainings and when you ask people to introduce themselves, about how large are are the groups? It depends. So usually it's a maximum of about 20. And 20 is like the most that I would even want to like put people through that because I do realize it can take like, you know, 10 minutes or so. Yeah. I've seen uh, some organization, you know, it's kind of a an organizational cultural thing and I've seen some organizations where they'll have a a group of like a hundred people and uh, they'll have all of them stand up and introduce themselves. And, you know, it'll take half of a day. It, it's oh, so, so, but yeah, it, yeah, it is painful. It's much easier when you, when you have a small group, but even if you have a large group, a technique like this would be very useful. Even if you have a large group and don't allow everybody in that large group, let's say you have a thousand people, you know, it's, it's logistically impossible to have all 1000 stand up and introduce themselves. But you could have at least at least ten people introduce themselves, and you know, you, you pick ten kind of representative and reasonably diverse people to introduce themselves. And what does that tell the audience? It tells the audience that okay, maybe I didn't get a chance to stand up and introduce myself, but my interests are represented by that person over there who works in a similar industry and you know is also a man or or something like that. So so yeah, that uh, that introduction technique is a, a very useful technique. Are there any like big no-nos? Cause I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, like also because I do a lot of teaching, some people come to me and they sort of ask me for help in terms of speech writing and, or, or I should say that's giving talks. And I never know because I've been doing it for so long. It's sort of is, is one of these things that's like natural. Oh, you do want to do XYZ. You don't want to do, you know, ABC. So you've given us mm-hmm. some ideas of what you do want to do. What are some things that might seem like things you want to do? that you don't if you want to get people attention and then have them become, have them be interested and become potential clients. Before we move on to new territory with that, oh, sorry. I'd, I'd like to, like to go back to the, the introduction thing, which actually kind of is a, a, a no, no thing. <clears throat> a tip that I would have when doing these introductions is uh, not going around the room in a predictable manner. Let's say that, uh, let's say that you have a, a group of 20 people in front of you. And you start over on the left side of the room and you gradually move over to the right side of the room. The effect often will be that the people who have not yet spoken will be, uh, they'll be kind of rehearsing in their heads what they're going to say. And after they speak, they'll be sitting there slightly shy and thinking, man, did I screw that up really bad? Uh, <laughs> and, and so, so the, the only people who will be listening to the introductions will be you, the speaker, and the person in the audience who's introducing themselves, no one else will be listening. So instead, uh, I recommend uh, jumping around, you know, a little bit over here on the left side of the room, then introduce a person over here on the right side of the room, and somebody from the middle of the room. So mixing it up into a, an order, a, a more random, a seemingly more randomized order. But uh, Ruben, you asked a question uh, a moment ago uh, about uh, big no-nos. What was that question? Yeah, like, like I mean, so if someone's giving a talk, they're at a conference or something, and, and they want to maximize the, the number of people who are interested in contacting them, um, either right after the talk or, or in the you know, weeks and months afterwards. So you've mentioned some things they should do. What are some things they should not do? I would recommend that they uh, not read from their notes. Yeah. I've seen uh, – you know, some speakers who will get up there and they'll stand behind the podium and they'll grip both sides of the podium and they're so nervous and they'll 
read word for word from from the speech and that tends to be really bad for uh, the conversion rate on the the lead generation activities because what do people learn about you they they learn that you're you're not approachable and they want to talk to an expert and if you're up there and you're reading off of off of your script you might not be an expert if you're an expert if you know your subject really well you could probably just talk off the top of your head any of us are experts on some subject or other and on that subject we don't need a script we can just talk about that subject off the top of our head so that would be probably number 1 on my tip of big no-nos is do not read off of your script it's perfectly okay to have some notes to help you stay on track but if your audience wanted you to stand up there and read off your notes they could have stayed at home and they would have read a book or something <laughs> I love the yeah. cadence that comes off of that too, because it's always, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, the, the cadence also tends to, not, not only the technique, but also the cadence tends to put people to sleep. Yep. Yeah. Matt, I was curious if you have any advice on topic selection. Like, what kind of stuff should you talk about if you, if your goal is, you know, to project expertise and and hopefully pick up some some really good potential client leads. How would you choose the right topic? Problem resolution. Choose a topic that it's a problem that uh, most of your audience is having, and how have you resolved it? And you don't have to. You don't have to. Well, actually, you probably should not stand up there and try to appear perfect, like. Uh, Hey, all of you unwashed masses out there, uh, you're having this problem. I have <laughs> solved it. Uh, I'm the big wise one now. Uh, everybody follow me. That's a bad way to go about problem resolution. But five years ago, I started having this problem. And so I started trying to solve it. I tried this and it worked well for a while, but then I ran into some other problems or it didn't solve the problem completely. So I tried technique, you know, number two. And that solved it a little bit better, but there were still some problems. So I tried, I made some adjustments and I tried technique number three. So the, the audience knows that you can solve the problem and you can solve the problem that they're having, but you, you also understand that not everybody has the, the perfect knowledge of the solved problem. And you're probably going to be patient as you're walking them first, walking them through while they stumble through the attempt to solve this problem. Yeah, I can see how that, you know, boy meets girl dynamic story structure kind of could work with that where you're not yeah. like, here's the problem and then ta-da, magic wand solution. <laughs> yeah. But it's like problem and then, you know, apparent solution and then setback and then, you know, yeah. other approach. And then so it, it's more interesting, it sounds like, to describe it that way. It's more interesting. I mean, it, it makes for a more interesting speech. What do humans like to do? One of the things that humans like to do is they like to see other humans trying to solve problems. So if you get up there and you try to position yourself as, you know, the guy who doesn't have any problems because they've been solved already, nobody's going to be interested in that. If you get up there and you position yourself as the, the brave guy who sees the problem and isn't quite sure how to tackle it, but tries to do it anyway, and here's what he learned, they'll be much more interested in that. And uh, because you will come across as more approachable, your conversion rate on generating the leads will skyrocket if you take that, if you take that approach. My email to my uh, list today was about the Jerry Springer show. And uh, I think that that uh, for the for listeners who are not familiar with that, I can't really recommend that you familiarize yourself with it. But that's like the the core dynamic of that show is like people with problems, uh, <laughs> uh, quote unquote, trying to work them out in public. Yeah. <laughs> I seem to remember um, like hearing someone talk about like Hollywood, where they said, "You know, why are there is there always conflict on shows?" In you know, uh -huh. TV or in movies, because otherwise it's really boring. Like no one wants to see, you know, Mr. Jones went to work. Mr. <laughs> Jones has a happy family, right? Like no one's interested in that. We're always interested yeah. in some sort of conflict. And so if you can sort of put some sort of conflict or tension into your talk and your story, then people are more likely to be interested. There, there's a video that I'll, I'll mention when we when we start talking about our picks. But uh, 
one, one of my picks is this uh, YouTube video. And, and, and in this video, Kurt Vonnegut is uh, diagramming story structures. And, and one of the, the structures that he, uh, that he diagrams is called, he, he calls it uh, man in whole. This, the structure is, is extremely simple. It's uh, man gets himself in a hole, man gets himself out. And, and then he says, people love that story. And, and the, audience, <laughs> the audience laughs. But, but yeah, it's absolutely true. If you try to portray yourself as I'm the guy who never got himself into a hole and all my problems are solved, you'll be like the most boring person on the earth, the most boring person who ever existed. You call it holier than thou. Yeah, exactly. all right well let's go ahead and uh wrap this up and get to picks philip what are your picks i should pick the jerry springer show i was just reading the wikipedia (laughs) article on that i mean it's it's a lot of things but it is a successful example of dramatized storytelling it's been on the air since 1991 25 years, I think. Anyway, um, I'm reminded of in what Matt's been talking about here. There's a lot going on with speaking as lead generation that relates to building trust. And I think, you know, half of the game is, is sort of ability to be authentic in a, in a sort of high pressure, high stakes situation. So uh, I'm going to pick my thing again, trustvelocity.com, which is a list of lead generation techniques sorted by their ability to increase trust. You'll see when you look at that list that um, speaking is way up at the top. And I think that's because it's it's just so when done right, it's just so fast and, and rapid at, at building trust. And I think that's one of the reasons it makes for a great lead gen technique, if you can pull it off. And I, I feel like now we have a lot more information about how to do that well. So that's my pick for this week. Nice. Reuven, what are your picks? So I have a simple pick, which is the famous term inbox zero. So I finally, like after years of having tons and tons of email and being stressed about it and not getting back to people for days or weeks or months and being profoundly embarrassed about it, I finally decided... Like the time has come to do something about this. And so over the last few weeks, I little by little chipped away at the email in my inbox. And about, I think it was three days ago, I finally was able to make that famous uh, claim of inbox zero. We'll see how long it lasts. and Hopefully it'll last a while. But I have to say that for the last few days, it has been sort of shocking how relaxed I am now. I mean, I mean, I'm not really relaxed. It's still me. But like, relaxed about email and I can close my email program and not be terrified that there's all this stuff backing up. I I feel like in some ways it's like getting out of debt that right. It's like this sort of thing off your shoulders. So it is possible. And and I should say, I should say the other thing is I really like didn't understand how all these people who are clearly way more um, sort of overworked than I am and have so many, and do so many more things than I do, how is it that they are not totally backed up with email and they're able to turn it off for all but one or two times a day when they respond to it all? And I see now that if you get rid of a lot of it and then you, you get it in these measured chunks, you can actually deal with it more easily. So uh, for those of you out there uh, struggling under email, it is possible and I strongly recommend you try it. And again, I'll, I'll let you know how long it actually lasts. But if it even lasts a few weeks or uh, even hopefully a few months or longer, I can tell you already it's, it's going to make my life a lot better. Cool. I've got a couple of picks here. So I think last week I picked uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And uh, some of the same folks who have recommended his books to me recommended another book that I'm reading now, and it is also blowing my mind. It is Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. And uh, he talks about, it's, it's basically about prioritizing the right things and then setting up systems to get them done. And it, so it's kind of a time management book, but it is it goes well beyond that, in my opinion. Um, I'm still reading it. I'm really enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to pick that book. And then the fantasy series that I mentioned that I've been reading lately, it's called The Malorian by David Eddings. It is really a fun read. Uh, it's five books in the series. If you want the backstory on it, there's another series called The Belgariad, also by David Eddings. That's another five-book series. And, yeah, you probably want to read that one first. You can follow the story in The Malorian without it, but it has a lot of the same characters in it. So, yeah, if you want that in order, you can. And then I'm also going to push a few other things here. One is is that if you have a burning question or problem in your freelancing practice and you need a little bit of help, 
Uh, we have things set up where you can record a quick YouTube video detailing what your problem is and who you are. And you can submit that at freelancershow.com slash struggling. And if we like your question, we may invite you on the show, uh, dig into it a little bit more and have you on the show so we can talk through it. And then finally, this show will come out a couple of weeks before uh, a couple of other things that I want people to be aware of. If you're in Chicago, I'm good. I'm doing a meetup in Chicago on uh, July 9th. And then uh, the week after that is Newbies Remote Conf. So if you're a new programmer or you want new programmer content, you can check that out. And finally, much less relevant, I guess, to this audience, I'm putting together a webinar series on how to find a job. So if you are a new programmer, you've been listening to this just out of some interest in freelancing, but you really want to find that full-time job, you can go check that out at getacoderjob.com. It's going to be a webinar series that I'm eventually going to turn into a paid course, and hopefully that can help some folks jump that hurdle and get that job. So anyway, lots of stuff there, but uh, go ahead and check those out. Also putting on a couple of other remote conferences if you're into those things, and I'll just shout those out real quick as well. Uh, upcoming, we have Robots Remote Conf, uh, Rails Remote Conf, Angular Remote Conf, and React Remote Conf all coming up at the end of the summer and beginning of the fall. So you can check all those out at allremoteconfs.com. Matt, what are your picks? My first pick is uh, is that Kurt Vonnegut video that I, I mentioned, and uh, I'll send you the, the link so you can put it in the show notes. But he, he graphs three stories, uh, two generic structures. Uh, one is, he calls it the man in hole. Man gets in hole, man gets out. It's, it, and the, the second structure that he, uh, graphs is boy meets girl. You know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. And, uh, what I really liked about this video, it's, it's a short video. It's like, you know, three minutes, something like that. What I really liked about this video is that he, you know, he takes these complicated, mysterious things called, you know, famous stories that stick around for years and he, makes you realize that, wow, the basic structure is amazingly simple. He even takes uh, Cinderella and he, he graphs, you know, the whole story of Cinderella. And you see that graph and you're just like, oh, my God, this structure is so simple. So he, he takes this big mysterious thing of stories that, you know, get handed down for thousands of years and he graphs them in, in a very simple and clear way. Cool. Now, if people want to check out what you're up to these days, Matt, uh, they want to follow you on Twitter or maybe uh, get a little more information from you, what should they do? They should uh, go to a particular page on my website. It's uh, DopplerCom. Com is in communications. So DopplerCom.com slash FS, as in FS is in freelancers show. And uh, there they'll find a guide to the the three mindset changes that we discussed at the beginning and then like a five day, you know, or a five installment email course about how to structure a speech, stuff like that. So, uh, dopplercom.com slash FS. All right. Very cool. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this show up. Uh, thanks okay. for coming, Matt. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.